The rule for victory. The rule for victory. Ephesians 3 and verse 20, I'm using as my text. Paul said, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. We can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think because of this power that works in us. I kind of get the idea that the Lord loves the church and He's with us always. That we have a strength that we don't realize. We have a victory only by this rule of faith. So what is the rule for success, for victory? Uh, I want to suggest some things that we need to get out of the way. Uh, would you say that the rule for success or victory is planning, church planning? How about finances? How about organization and brilliant leadership? You do remember Gideon, don't you? God chose that man. And he acknowledged the fact that he was the least man in the least family, in the least tribe of all of Israel. And God chose him to be the general that would lead the war for Israel. Put yourself in that man's shoes. He had a hard time accepting that. He said, told the prophet, I, I can't accept this except God show me a sign that this is true. Because he said, after all, I'm the least man, the least family, the least tribe of all of Israel. And you're telling me God wants me as a general? I've never studied war. I've never been to uh, uh, the military schools. I'm not the man that he's, you made a mistake. And God proved to him that he chose him. You know why he chose him? Because of the fact that he was a simple man. The church finds its victory in simple men like Gideon. God's choice has always been the Gideons of the world. Jesus chose twelve apostles. And you have and they, their enemy always called them, are not these lowly Galileans? And how here we are man in our own language wherein we were born. Acts 2. And so you wonder how come Jesus didn't go down to the great temple and pick out 12 men to be apostles who had letters of learning and great educations by man. They had them. He chose what the world called holy Galileans. God has always chose the Gideons to get his work done. You know why? Because they don't trust in themselves. They don't trust in their abilities and their knowledge. They trust in the Word of God. They're simple. On one occasion, Jesus prayed to his Father in the face of the Jews in an argument with them. He wanted them to hear the prayer. And he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast not revealed thyself unto the wise and the prudent but under the simple. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't mind bragging and boasting and being the simple. Because God's revealed things to me that I'm so grateful for. It's been through study. Don't anybody get the idea that he's talking to me uh, firsthand. <laughs> but nevertheless, I brag and boast in the fact that I'm a simple man. Because that's the only one who will humble himself under the mighty hand of God that he may be exalted in due time. That's the only one that will go through his sufferings realizing that God will strengthen, establish, and settle him at the end or along the way. And so, and so this lesson, the rule for victory, Paul assured us in our text that he can do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And so let me ask the question again. What is the rule for success, uh, for victory? Uh, is it planning? Is it finances? Is it organization and brilliant leadership? Now, I'll admit that those may play a part in the success of our endeavors. That's true. But the real power of our work is something far more certain The rule for victory, it's faith. Courage comes to those who sense the presence of God in their lives. They're the only ones. And the victory is a result of our faith. The proof of that is found throughout the New Testament, but I've picked a couple of passages I want to deal with. The rule for victory is faith, Matthew 8 and verse 8. A centurion from Capernaum comes and says to Jesus, uh, My servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus says to the centurion in verse 13, Go, it will be done unto you as you have believed. The American standard says, As you believed, so be it done. That's the rule for victory. It's not the exception. It is the rule throughout the scriptures. Here is an unchangeable uh, rule that will be seen throughout the book of Matthew and incidentally all through the Bible. Uh, I want to recount to you a story of Jonathan, Saul's son. Saul was king, the first king over Israel. His son, Jonathan, was very dear to David in their travels. But in uh, 1 Samuel, the 14th chapter, and I'm not going to read it. Uh, it's too much, takes up too much time. You can read it at home. Just let me tell you the story. The 14th chapter reveals the fact that Israel was going to war under Saul, king of Israel, against the Philistines. And as nature of warfare is, there was a period of preparation getting ready and built up and moving, uh, moving things 
to the proper place where they can have have this war. Our armies do that to this day. <clears throat> the Philistines have come over and are up in the cliffs of the rock and they're spying on the Jews to, to uh, uh, learn their battle strategy. <clears throat> and Saul gave an order to his soldiers, don't leave the camp, don't, don't cause any trouble until the day comes when we start the war. But Jonathan is a man of God. He's a man of faith. And by that faith, he gets up in the middle of the night and tells his armor bearer, come with me. And they went out to face those Philistines. There's 20 Philistines. Now these are not ordinary soldiers. These are green, what we call the Green Beret. These are the SEALs that we have in our military. These are the, the prime men, 20 of them, that is sent by the Philistines out in these cliff area where it's very defensible for them, and they're spying on the Israelites. And Jonathan cannot hold back. He gets his armor bearer, and he goes out there to meet those Philistines. And they get out there, and here they, they've got to climb a cliff area. Very steep. The Bible says it. They climbed it on their hands and knees up that hill, killing those Philistines as they went. But before they went, Jonathan hollered up and asked them, Are you coming down here, or do we have to come up there to get you? Here's two Israelites against 20. And the text says that when they went up there and whooped those 20, they did so in half an acre of ground. I mean, I'd like to see that battle, wouldn't you? And in that battle, here's this armor bearer, poor old fellow. He had to be scared to death. Uh, his his leader is in front of him, and he's got to go where he goes. And so the Jonathan is slaying them ahead of him, climbing that mountain, and he's throwing the bodies back there, and the armor bearer finishes them off with his sword. They took that hill. And they took it because of Jonathan's faith. You read about it in verse 6. He says, For there is no restraint to Jehovah to save by many or by few. If God wants the deliverance, it doesn't matter if it's one man or a thousand. God is able to conquer what He wants. Remember Gideon's case? The whole... Uh, Israelite nation poured out to fight the war. God said, that's too many. You tell them that if they've got business at home, to go back. And it was a bunch of them left. And still there was too many. And so God said, when he come to that creek to drink here pretty soon, the man that... Uh, uh, the man that dips over and sips out of the river, send him home. The only ones left was the men that he wanted, 300, that drank out of their hand. You see, they're watching the enemy. They're looking for the, for the charge. They're looking for trouble to come at them. 
You don't see trouble when you're bent over with your face in the river. You drink like this. Anyway, God chose 300 men, and those 300 men with Gideon, the least man, the least family, the least tribe of all of Israel, whooped their enemy that was hundreds of thousands. God was with them. And they believed God. They went with God's command and God's instructions. And you can read about that in uh, the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel. And you know that battle, uh, what happened was Jonathan let one man go back to the Philistines. One man. He wanted that one man to go back and tell them that they, his green beret just faced one Israelite and he killed them all except the one. Now that would put fear in you, wouldn't it? It certainly would. And so at the end of the battle it says, and there was a trembling in the earth, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they all trembled, and the earth quaked, so there was an exceeding great trembling. I guess there was. The green braid come back, the one man out of 20 came back with a boy. We don't want to go up against them Israelites. One man come up there and was killing us on the way uphill. You don't want to fight your enemy uphill. You don't have the advantage unless God's with you. His victory was because of this rule. Be it done unto thee according to thy will. That was the words of our Lord on many occasions. In Matthew 9 and verse 27, two blind men came to Jesus saying, Have mercy on us, uh, son of David. And Jesus said to them, uh, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And in verse 29, he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done unto you. According to your faith. Now, as we're studying this this morning, I want you to recognize you men that are leaders in the congregation. You men that have made yourself responsible to teach, to preach, to lead in prayer, song. <coughs> the congregation will grow only according to your faith. It'll grow only according to the depths of your faith. Because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Notice in uh, chapter 8, verse 13, and we looked at it a while ago, Jesus said, Be it done according to your faith. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 29, he said the same thing there. Be it done according to your faith. In both cases, what is the rule? It's faith. Faith is the rule. Not a lot of ability, not a lot of money, simply faith in one who is able to do all things. And that's our text, Ephesians, uh, there in chapter 3, verse 20. He can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You see, we're too busy looking at our resources and not our resource. And that is our problem. 
You want to know why the church doesn't grow? That's one of the reasons. It's because men have settled in as though it was just a thing you attend and you partake of the supper and you go home feeling like uh, you're saved. Now, I'd be scary if I thought like that. The Bible don't teach that. In Matthew 15 and verse 22, <coughs> a Canaanite woman from Tyre came to Jesus. She's not a Jew now. Keep that in mind. She came to Jesus saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now I want you to notice in every one of these cases that we've looked at so far, the one word that qualifies them was have mercy. They went to the Lord for mercy. Each one was seeking mercy. His disciples urged him to send her away because she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And Jesus answered her, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. <coughs> Jesus put her on trial right there. She was humble enough to accept that because that's what a Gentile was to the Jewish nation were dogs. They weren't to eat with them. They weren't to uh, associate with them until Acts 10 when you read about Cornelius and his household and their salvation. But nevertheless, that was the case in Jesus. You know, if we had a preacher today that said to make a statement like that, we would label him prejudice and we'd never go back, wouldn't we? That's the way we are. But he was challenging her to recognize that he was going to show mercy, but it would be mercy that was overextended in terms of the time and frame of the gospel being preached. And she said, yes, Lord, I know that. But even the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Pretty humble woman, wasn't it? And Jesus responded, be it done unto thee, even as thou wilt, or according to your faith. Again, there's the rule for victory. It was faith. Let's look at the nature of faith just a moment. Now, uh, in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, it tells us the nature of faith. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now that doesn't mean faith's blind. I didn't see Jesus, did you? But I've read about him and I've looked at the evidence that substantiates the credibility that he was a son of God. In fact, an hour earlier in our class we're studying the Gospel of John. It's been labeled the Gospel of Belief. Because in the 20th chapter, verse 30 and 31, John said, he told us why he wrote what he did in that gospel. He said, truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And I believe that you might have life through his name. That was his purpose in writing. 
<clears throat> and so, according to the definition of faith, it's being sure and being certain. I think we ought to claim things by faith, and then we can uh, be certain of its uh, happening. If we claim it because we have money, what can a depression do? It can take away your money. If you depend on your ability, what can sickness do to an ability? It can take away your ability. And so if we have the money and the ability to do everything that we plan to do, we cannot be sure and certain that it would be done if that's where we put our trust. But if we have faith, we can be sure and certain that it would be done because faith is being sure of what we hope for. There are several illustrations of that principle in Hebrews 11th chapter. It's been entitled, The Heroes of Faith, in the 11th chapter. By faith, Noah builds an ark, the text says. So faith builds an ark when it seems ridiculous to build an ark, because it never rained until the flood. They didn't know what rain was. Isn't it kind of stupid? And here's a landlubber way in from the ocean building a vessel that to this very day the dimensions of that vessel are considered by the engineers to be the most perfect dimensions for a seagoing vessel. Did you know that? To this day. And here by faith Noah builds an ark. 120 years of building that ark. Can you imagine the laughter he put up with the mockery? People coming by and laughing and saying, look at that fool out there. Hey, fool, what are you doing out here in dry land building an ark? But he built it by faith. By faith, Abraham, Hebrews 11 goes on to tell us, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going when God called him out of the earth of the Chaldees not even knowing when he got there until God said, this is it. God was taking him to a land that he wanted to give to him. And finally God said to Abraham, unto thy seed have I given this land. But he went by faith. He believed in God. And for the rest of his life, he acted like he owned it. Abraham did. He was sure of what he hoped for and certain of what he had not seen when he left the earth of Chaldees. The 11th chapter also tells about Moses. By faith, Moses chose to suffer ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You knew sin was pleasurable, didn't you? The Bible don't lie to you. The pleasures of sin. But it also says it's just for a season. It has a short period. It's over. <coughs> and so uh, Moses, a 
accounted the reproaches of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. He could have had all the treasures and pleasures that this world has to offer. And he said, I'll take the world to come. That was his choice. He was sure of what he hoped for and certain for what he had not seen. And on and on the illustrations of victory uh, through faith is given in Hebrews 11th chapter. We just dealt with a couple of instances there. But look at the conclusion to faith. Point number three on the outline over there. The conclusion of faith. You asked Abraham now whether it was worth the struggle that he went through in his life. You've read about Abraham. Was it worth all that time dwelling in a tent and having no certain dwelling place, owning nothing really, and always being hated and driven about from here to there? And he would say, what do you think they call paradise? They call it Abraham's bosom. Ask Moses, was it worth it? And he would say, you know, I sing a duet in heaven. In Revelation 15, 3, it's recorded the song of Moses and the Lamb. I sing a duet with Jesus in the heavenly choir would be his response if it was worth it. You stand before God in judgment having spent all your life acquiring the things of this world and taking care of yourself and furnishing your own home and your own things and giving a little bit to God along the way and then ask the question, was it worth it? What did Jesus tell the rich man? Or Excuse me, what did Abraham tell a rich man when he pleaded to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers not to come to the place of torment? The rich man realized that all he had, he gave up in death. Because God said to the rich man, Thou fool! This night is thy soul required of thee. And then, whose shall these things be? Now I'll give a little thought about that because I like to collect guns. And I like the mechanical ability of guns, how they're made. It intrigues me. And that's crossed my mind that one day I'll leave this earth. It isn't very far off either. And I'll leave them guns behind. I'll be like the monkey that goes into the cage after a banana in Africa, because that's how they catch them. And the little monkeys that destroys the farmer's fields. They set a trap with a funnel of wire. And the monkey can get his hand in there this way. But once he wraps around that banana, as we wrap around the things of this world, he can't pull his hand back out of that hole. And you can't turn loose of materialism if that's your goal, like that banana. And he goes to screaming. He awakes and alarms the farmer, and the farmer picks up a billy club and comes over. And the little monkey's eyes gets big. He ain't going to turn loose that banana, though, until the farmer beats the life out of him. And he dies. That's when he turns loose the banana. 
What are you living for? What are you giving your life for? Is it for the Lord and the things of this world? Well, my last point, is it uh, is there an alternative to walking and living by faith? Well, there certainly is. In Matthew 8, verse 23, Peter and the disciples are in a boat in a storm. Now, this always, ama- this always amazed me that these men were with the Lord of the, of the lake. They were with the Lord that had power over all things, and they'd seen it. They seen him as he showed all of these qualities you see up here on the board on this side. He proved himself to be master of all things. And yet they're on a boat and they fear because a storm come up and would kill them, drown them. Now, the point of all of this is that if the Lord is in your life, that's his boat that he's in. There's nothing going to happen to you that's harmful. Romans 8, verse 31. It's asked the question, since God is for us, who or what can be against us? And so if the Lord is in your boat, as it were, you have nothing to worry about. But these men are scared. Uh, They're in a storm. And instead of trusting in Jesus, they began to be afraid of drowning. Fear is the alternative to faith. If you want to know an alternative that particularly most men work walk in, the fear. That's why they're so angry when somebody mentions Scripture or mentions God. That's why they tell you on these jobs in the lunchroom, we don't discuss religion or, or politics. They don't like it. They have no control over it. There's another alternative uh, that's found in Matthew 13, verse 54. Uh, Jesus came to his hometown and he began teaching the people in their synagogues. And they took, uh, they took offense at him and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Did you notice that last statement? He did not many mighty works there in his own hometown. Why did he, he leave? Because of their unbelief. And so there's a rule for victory and it's the victory of faith. And so where there's unbelief, the Lord is not going to do any mighty works. And when there's that tinge of unbelief in the Lord's church, when we trust the Lord only so far, we're not going anywhere. Oh, we could gather and sing all the songs in the songbook and make a, a, an awful noise, a loud noise, and that's all it is. It won't be from heart. It won't be out of faith. Because faith is a victory that overcomes the world. So the victory over sin and death begins with faith in Jesus.
And that's what he said in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. You see why there's no separate salvation for the Jews and another one for us Gentiles? Colossians makes it clear, Ephesians makes it clear, that God took of the twain, the text says, of Jew and Gentile, and made both two, made them one in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only Savior. And so victory over sin and death begins with faith in Jesus. And here's an interesting point that maybe you haven't considered. Some people put off their salvation. Somebody say, well, uh, maybe next Sunday, maybe maybe next month, uh, uh, maybe when I get old and decrepit and all of that, I might obey the gospel. But you'll never be neutral about the Lord because you're either with Him or against Him. You'll make a decision this very hour. Because Jesus said, He that's not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. You know that leaves no room in the middle for somebody claiming the right defense. And you're either with him or you're against him. You're either gathering with him or you're or are you uh, you're lost. So you'll make a decision, and in that decision, I'd like to suggest a very simple uh, outline of what God has for us. Salvation, it costs God His Son. Salvation costs Jesus His life. And salvation will cost man His loyalty and His service. Matthew 16 and verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so, the unanswered question this morning may be, are you ready to pay the price? You see, conversion is when our heart is changed by faith. And it's when our life is changed by repentance. And it's when our relationship to God is changed by baptism. That's the lesson this morning. What you do about it is your business. God gave you the dignity to throw your life away or to change it. But he pleads earnestly, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Revelation says he stands at the door and knocks. And if any man, any man, any man will, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. The Lord is willing and gracious to give his blessings to everyone. He says on another occasion that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, that he'd have all men come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. The devil has screwed up this world something unbelie- unbelievable ways. We see it every day on the news. 
We experience it in life's way every day. We see it in ourselves, the hatred, the malice, the, the things that shouldn't be there. And Jesus is the only one that can give you rest from those things. He's the only one. But the choice will always be yours. There was an artist painted a picture of that in Revelation that says that the, the Lord stands at the door of a man's heart and knocks. Do you know that artist painted that picture and he didn't put a doorknob on the outside because the Lord won't force entry? You've got to invite him in. And the interesting thing about it is when you open the door and invite him in to your life, your heart. He steps through the threshold as the guest, and you're the host. But when he comes through that threshold with his provisions, he becomes the host, and you become the guest in your own heart as he fills you up and makes you able to stand firm in a world that's determined to destroy you. But the choice will always be yours. God gave you that dignity to make that choice. You don't have to love Him. You don't have to obey Him. But one day you'll be outside the blessings of God because that's what hell is. Outside of the blessings of God. You enjoy a good state, don't you? You enjoy the cool, crystal clear water flowing out of some stream. You enjoy the beauty of this creation. You like to take a vacation up in the hills, the mountains, and see the awesomeness of the glory of God. Those things are not there in hell. There's nothing there but you're pining away and you're worrying as you, like the rich man, worry about your family. The rich man pleaded with Abraham as he lifted up his eyes and held fire. And he said, Please, Abraham, send Lazarus back, and he warned my brothers not to come to this place of torment. There'd be no family reunions in hell. I've heard a lot of men say, well, if I go there, I'll have a lot of company. They ain't going to like it. There'll be no rejoicing in hell. Can you imagine being void of God, void of all of his glory and his blessings? Think about that. But the invitation is yours while we stand and sing. <clears throat> <Good work. laughs>